This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me this week, it is the one, the only Kip Winger. You know him, you love him. And of course, uh, on the other side of that is Eric Baker. And some of you will say, who now? And Eric is, of course, the organizer, operator, the brains behind, whatever you want to call it, of the M3 Rock Festival. And, of course, uh, we, we are in our M3 Rock Festival mode and mood, and so we're going to go over all of that. And joining me on the phone again, it is the one, the only, the mighty Steve Brown. Bonjour, Steve. Uh-huh. Comment allez-vous? Yes, Mitch. Yes, Mitch. Beautiful. It has such a ring to it, and it's great to be back, man. Yeah. How are you? How are you doing this week? Everything good? Yes, life life is good, and of course, the M3 Festival is coming up later this week, and it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. All the bands, I mean, you're there with Danger Danger. Uh, there's a version of LA Guns. There's Chips Enough who's doing some stuff. Uh, Kip Winger is doing some stuff. White Snake, which is big, giant, and huge. And so, okay, let me let me get to the first point. Last week, end of the episode or last show, I should say, we talked about Honeymoon Suite and why I think they should be there and Thunder and why I think they should be there and the Wild Hearts. And you said you need some time to think it over as to who should be at M3 that maybe hasn't been there before. So, did you do your homework? Do we have an answer? I'll give you I'll give you 50-50 on that. Yeah, sort of, but uh, <laughs> not, not, not probably as good as I should, but... Uh... You know, we we could still go forward. We can definitely go forward with it as far as talking about what bands I think should be on M3 that haven't done it. Wow, Tokyo there, Motor Fist. Really... Yeah, well, that, that that would certainly be the first one that I would say, Tokyo Motor Fist, and then of course Eric Martin and the Filthy Tricksters, which is the you know the great Eric Martin from Mr. Big and my partner in crime PJ Farley from Trickster and various other rock and roll bands that I've been in and, uh, and myself. So yeah, that, those two for certain. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you this because I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to cut you off for a second, but I, I put it out on my socials and Twitter and I had people answer and I got some answers like sacred Reich, overkill venom Anvil, and all great bands, not going to badmouth those bands, but I'm like, that's the wrong festival. Uh, no offense. Yeah, but... <laughs> totally. They're uh... like, no, it's a heavy metal festival. It's like, no. I mean, I, I know Poison or Brett Michaels or Whitesnake was called heavy metal in 1987, but let's let's call a spade a spade. They're melodic hard rock or blues rock. So do, do you think that Venom, Anvil, Sacred Rights, or Overkill are appropriate bands for M3? I mean, I'm, I'm no, voting. not not at all. I would say, you know, getting getting to the what that one of your one of your um, fans or one of your uh, followers said, heavy metal. No, it's what what we are. What the M3 festival is is heavy melody, heavy melody. Yes, not yes. heavy metal, but heavy melody. That's a big difference. It's hard rock, hard pop, heavy melody, um, bluesy rock. Um, for certain, 
this this is this is where this will be my number one besides Tokyo Motor Fist and Eric Martin and the Tricksters. The 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 Glenn Hughes show that Glenn Hughes is doing now, the Purple Tour that he's doing right now. I saw him last summer. Glenn's an old friend of mine. I think Glenn and his band would be phenomenal on M3. Yes. The, I can't disagree. Listen, if if Whitesnake can be there and David Coverdale can be there, then absolutely Glenn can show up and do Burn and some of those Purple songs and some of the, the, the more modern oh. rock stuff. I, absolutely. I would, of course, like to see some some other stuff, you know, like Cinderella get reunited and have the four guys. Even if it's a one-off, that would be perfect. I know Tom did it. But I, I would like to see Le Cinderella, you know, the, the real deal. Uh, who else? I don't know. Has, has Tesla done it before? I, I can't remember. Because if not, I vote Tesla. Tesla's done it twice, and Cinderella did it in 2010, the first right. time Trickster did it. Oh, that's right. But see, so maybe I'm not looking for some bands that have never done it, but I think there, it's time for a return to maybe some of these. And listen, if if the budget was there or if the availability was there, obviously Def Leppard, obviously Bon Jovi, um, you know. But I but I think that that's 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 a different ball game, ballpark. But there's there's a lot of great ones out there uh, that need sure. to, Poison would, would need to play it as as Poison, not Brett Michaels, not the whatever. Um, you know, a lot of good stuff. Uh, but I, I like the uh, I like the idea of a Steve Brown uh, night. So on the front <laughs> on the Friday night, you just show up with all your different bands. So you do a couple of songs with Dennis DeYoung, a couple of songs with uh, Phil Collin acoustic. You do Miss Me in a Heartbeat. And then you move over and do some uh, trickster stuff. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's the way to go. The Steve Martin. night. Yeah. The, the st- yeah, well, you know, you never know, man. But I think you know the uh, another getting back to it. I think another cool aspect of M3 would be like all these, um, you know, all of the let's say the frontiers and all the different labels, kind of these these hybrid supergroup things. I think some of those. I think Sweet Lynch, if they ever played a gig, you know, Michael Sweet and George Lynch to play M3. I think that would be kind of cool, you know, in an earlier slot. Um, I, you know, I just think that, that it's a definite showcase for some of the other bands, but another band, which I'll, which I'll, which I did a festival with a couple months ago, who I thought was great was the legendary band from, I believe they're from Sweden. Pretty Maids. Yes. Pretty Maids. Great. Yeah. I agree. Pretty Maids, Pink Cream 69, uh, uh, Gothard, um, made me a little more sort of European flair. What do you think of Foreigner? Are, are they old to old school? Are they right in the right? era i mean the fans would obviously like the songs because they they know urgent and they know hot blood and so the songs would go over well but do they belong i think so i mean i think foreigner would fit right in there and i will you know look look i think didn't didn't lover boy do it a few years ago yes they did absolutely getting back to you know listen uh, uh getting back to your point honeymoon suite another great band but to get on a bigger level like I think I think Rick Springfield would be great on it because most people think Rick Springfield is a, is is not as rock as you know uh, some of the other bands, but he really is. And especially I played with him live, and he's a he's a big. Uh, I'm sorry, dude. I'm dealing with. Uh, I got my cat looking for stealing my daughter's lunch. Go sit down, Jade. <laughs> yeah, this is this I, is real rock and roll. I'm boy. not cutting this out. I'm leaving it in. Yeah, there you go. 
And my daughter, my, my cat's trying to eat my daughter's lunch, everybody. So there you go. Rock and roll reality for you. Doing, doing an interview and uh, taking care of my six-year-old daughter all at the same time. We just, just so you know, we just put on Cinderella 2 on DVD. So life is good right now. Wow, DVD. Not, not streaming. This is talking about old school. Look at, look at you. Are you going to take oh, man, out some dude, dad still, tapes later? Yeah, dude, I still have a disc man that I carry with me on the plane. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> Listen to CDs on. Oh, like a real disc man. Those are awesome. Does it have shock control at least? Is that because that's important? It, it, it does. It does. It, it's pretty funny. We were, uh, I, I was flying somewhere with Eddie Trunk a couple of years ago and I whipped it out and he was dying. He was like, oh my God, that's the best thing ever. And I was like, we were listening to a bunch of new CDs that I'd gotten and uh, it was pretty comical. But yeah. That's you know, funny. I'm kind of lazy. I'm kind of lazy. I still, I have a huge CD collection, so I'm still, uh, still determined to get my money's worth out of every CD that I have. Yeah, you know, so do I. But I've changed my CD experience. So for me, a song doesn't exist if it's not on CD. But what I do is I will burn it straight into iTunes as an Apple lossless file. So a perfect CD copy. And then I throw it on the phone and I, I never actually play them. I, I, I load them once because I have so many old CDs that went through, you know, Volkswagen CD players that have scratches. I'm like, nah, not anymore. I buy it. I burn it. Put it in the phone. Merci, bonsoir. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, we haven't uh, talked about Kip Winger at all, and we're 10 minutes in. But uh, should we just let Kip talk for himself then? I think we should. Love Kip. He's an old friend and still, you know, one of the guys who's still kicking ass out there. And, uh, you know, as good, uh, you know, as good as he ever was in his band. I love Reb and Rod. And, uh, you know, it's just really cool, man. It's great to be there, and I can't wait to see him over the weekend at M3. Yeah, me too. And uh, do I throw in the mighty when I introduce him, or is he just the one and only? I'm just I'm curious. No, he gets Kip. Kip gets the mighty. Kip gets the mighty. He gets the mighty. Okay, so here we go. Uh, without further ado, folks, uh, here is uh, the one, uh, the only, as we say in Quebec, le seul et unique, and the mighty, Kip Winger. We are speaking with uh, Winger frontman Kip Winger. Uh, Kip always, always a pleasure to talk to you. I don't think we've done an interview since. Oh. Probably the last album, so going back to 2014, but uh, always love chatting with you. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for uh, thank you for being interested in doing the interview. Appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. So, listen, part, part of the interview here that we're setting up is because of the M3 Festival. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about your career. Because, yes, you've been in Winger, but it's some of the other stuff that you've done that really interests me. Get Jack, the um, the album, the, what the Grammy nominated album, um, conversations with Nijinsky. There's just a lot of stuff above Winger that I'd, I'd love to talk about. But M3, sure. just quickly talk to me about that festival and the importance of having festivals like M3 and what they mean for the fan base and what they mean for the bands because it keeps everybody very high profile and they're just good for the scene right yeah it's um well it's very important to support live music that's the biggest the biggest issue and uh, uh m3's been a it's become a staple in in summer festivals and uh the guy who runs it's very he, he's very efficient and does it right he's band friendly a lot of a lot of the people that run these can not take the bands in enough consideration because it's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 
there's timing issues and, you know, just logistics that are very important. So M3 is always one that we all look forward to because they really, they do it right. So, and it, and Baltimore is a great rock town and, and the fans are amazing. And it, historically speaking, you know, I mean, our band goes all the way back to Hammerjacks, which is an infamous club from Baltimore, which is, uh, you know, the, the fans have always been, um, very loyal to the rock community. And, and, uh, so it's, it's a win-win all the way around. M3 has really become, you know, one of the major festivals of the, of the, of the summer. So, and they always have a great roster of bands and it's fun for me because I get to see all my buds. Yeah, it, it really is a great festival. And of course, Eric Baker does a great job taking care of everybody. But uh, let us move on here just real quick because there's so much to talk about and, and so little time. Um, Get Jack the Musical, which was premiered, I guess, somewhere in around 2017, March of last year. You announced that it's going into the uh, from the workshop stage over to full production. Where are we with Get Jack, a musical thriller? Get Jack is at the lab stage and... Um... We are hoping to do a lab in the summer. We've done three or four workshops. I can't remember now. And we've done rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Now we have the script basically to where we think it's ready to put in front of an audience. And we've signed a producer. Our director is Kelly Devine, who um, is traditionally known as a choreographer. um, And she did come from away. She just got an Olivia Award for Come From Away, actually. And Rock of Ages and... She's uh, an incredible talent, and uh, she's directing. So September, we're shooting for a lab sometime, if not September, before the end of the year, and then moving into a, a theater somewhere we don't know yet. It's it's a very, uh, you know, there's so many moving parts to the musical theater world that uh, I'm a newbie, so I'm kind of following along. Everybody's kind of, I'm learning, I'm learning step by step as we go. But uh, I uh, produced the concept album, which is the first version of the script that Damien and I wrote. And that is now finished, it's mastered, and we are choosing a release date for that. So that will be out relatively soon, actually, within the next few months. So people will be able to hear the music and, you know, get a feel for the story. And uh, and then we're going to push forth into the theaters. So, so let me ask you about this because I, I was speaking to to Jim Valance and Brian Adams. They they've done the the musical Pretty Woman that's on Broadway now, and I said to Jim, "Boy, that's got to be great. Are you going to do another one?" And he said, "Not a chance on God's green earth. It is painstaking and, and it, it's almost a horrible experience." And I'm sort of paraphrasing. How is it for you? Because you have to write and rewrite, and then you 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 get into the production stage and you try it, and the producer says you got to change the song to fit the action. And was it a pleasant experience for you, or are you sort of uh, there with Jim Valance, like, ugh, all right, we've done it, but never again? <laughs> I would love to sit down and talk to him, man. Okay, right. so I can connect you. Coming from <laughs> yeah, coming from our world, the the world that Jim and I come from, it, it's it's torturous. It's 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 more work than you could ever imagine, but if you put yourself in the frame of mind of the people that are in that world, it's just another day at the office. So what I learned very quickly was to not be in love with anything I wrote and to be able to change it on a whim. And 
and it took me a long time to realize that I might change it back to the original even. So it's just a constant ebb and flow of change, 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 change. And I'm not really, I'm not one of those people. I, I write music and when I get it right, I get it right. And then uh, it's right for me and that's the way I want it. You know? So changing it, um, it was a challenge for me um, to get beyond that. And so now I'm completely beyond it. We've done four rewrites and, and I will say that the story did get better. So I can't, I can't say that it was a wasted effort. Um, it is like putting a fork in your eye, definitely. Um, but uh, the end result is better. And I'd spent so much time on it. I thought, well, I'm going to do this by their rules, you know, and I generally, if I take on something like learning how to write classical music for an orchestra, I will adapt their rules. I don't want to superimpose my belief system on theirs. I want to learn their language so I can speak to them in their language, master their language, and then infuse, you know, what I do. But I ain't lying. It was, it's, it's, it's a huge lift and, uh, and, and an ongoing, and I'm sure I'll continue to change things. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and I sense the same frustration that Jim had. Now, when you get back to making an album for, for Winger, the band, does do you learn anything from the experience of doing the musical and rewriting and, and, and refocusing and seeing things in a different light? You just said that it did get better. Or is writing, you know, the next better days coming just, I'm going to sit down with Reb, we're going to get the drum machine out, we're going to punch out some riffs, and that's it. It's our process. It's worked for 30 years that's how we do it. Do you learn from something? Or, we or do. Is it... Oh, no, absolutely. I learned. You'd have to be a fool not to learn from everything you do. Um, most particularly in this case, I learned. Um, it was the first time I'd written. Um, I'd written I, it was the first time I'd written um, music to lyrics instead of writing lyrics to music. And so that was that was um, shockingly uh, enlightening. And, uh, I really loved it. And so I don't know that I would do that with winger necessarily, but I might. And, and also there's nothing wrong with growing the ability to self edit. So if Reb and I are writing a riff and it goes, 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 and we're doing our thing and it's, this is our thing. Don't mess with us that's okay. But if you're going, well, this could be better, this could be better, this could be better. So, you know, if you can continue to make it better, then it's going to be better. So, um, being hyper self-critical has always been something I've tried to, you know, look at because, uh, I don't believe in anything that I do, uh, until it's, you know, already out and published because it can always be better, you know? So I did learn a lot from it and, well, Get Jack, I will say this. It's the one place where I've been able to put all my skills, my orchestral skills, my songwriting skills, my singing, writing for singers, um, you know, songwriting, classical um, arranging, and classical composition, because it's really like a big opera. You know, it's fully sung through. So um, it was an incredible learning experience. And the, to answer your question one question ago, would I do it again? When I got into it and we started changing it, I thought I'll never do this again. But I can see doing it, doing it again, if if I found a story that I thought was worthy of telling. Well, hopefully you will. Uh, just real quick on on the band Winger, of course, uh, Better Days Coming came out in 2014. 
Karma just before that in 2009. And I don't mean this disparagingly, but probably two of your better albums. In fact, maybe the two best you've ever done as a band. I mean, they're just phenomenal. Um, where do we see the band going in terms of new music uh, down the road? I, I, I know that there's been talk of 2020. Is that sort of a, a hard and fast, yeah, there's going to be an album next year? I'm planning on writing with Reb in August, so I would like to. And I appreciate you thinking that those are good albums. We, oh, I, uh, Listen, I don't try to live on my laurels of the past. I try to keep growing and, 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 uh, you know, not only get, becoming a better songwriter, but also developing the sound of the band as it goes. So, well, I mean, I say that because a lot of people are like attached to the first album still, you know, and some people never went beyond the first album. So, you know, uh, it doesn't go unnoticed that you've followed the band and heard us right till our very latest release. I, that's, uh, we appreciate that a lot. So, um, the answer is yes, we will keep, you know, coming with new music. It's fewer and farther between only because the band is so busy. I'm doing so many other projects. Reb's doing, been doing, uh, you know, he, the, the white snake thing for years now. John does starship rod teaches it. Well, he just finished teaching at Berkeley, but, um, you know, so we're not a band that only has this band as a nucleus for our creativity. Um, we source from a lot of different, uh, you know, kind of uh, different places. So uh, when we come together as a band, we feel like this is our main home and the place we all birthed ourselves out of. So there is a very special uh, bond between the band members there because, you know, we all made it together and this was the beginning, you know. So the Winger albums remain to be, ground zero uh for all of us in our hearts you know wow so so john roth is over with with starship because i actually just yesterday interviewed david freiberg which is well he yeah john is in you know uh, mickey thomas version of starship he's okay the guitar player. gotcha okay 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 gotcha yeah. gotcha uh, and and, yeah. and freiberg does great now uh, just quickly back to a new album. Musically, do, do you look back at what you did in the past and, and, and try to sort of stay in that vein? Or are you completely free now to just explore and push the boundaries and bring in maybe some classical influences, maybe some strings or something? Like, like where do you see... Does Winger have to have a Winger sound is basically the question. I think it does. And okay. I, think that we stay, I think we stay well within that. The place that I save for all the the most experimentation is my solo albums like conversation seems like a dream songs from the ocean floor. Those are the ones where I really, uh, knock the fence down and let all of it go in, uh, any direction that I see fit. And now I'm actually assembling parts for a new solo album as well. Um, I should mention that, um, Nashville Symphony has commissioned me for an album, which is one of the great, well, it's probably the greatest musical honor of my entire life. Giancarlo Guerrero um, commissioned me for Symphony Number no. 1 and a violin concerto. So um, I'm currently working on my Symphony Number no. 1. And trust me, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's a big task. <laughs> Scary. And, uh, and I'm doing that while I'm assembling parts for a solo album and thinking about a new winger album and 
you know, making sure all the rewrites on Get Jack are together. You know, so I'm, I would, you know, to say to to say the least, I'm overwhelmed with with the the time it takes to get this stuff together. But um, to answer your question, which is a full circle back to your original question, is that I think the sound of the band um, when Reb and I get together and write with Winger, that's that creates the sound of winger. I, I think just by merit of the fact that we're both in the same room, um, creates the sound. We don't have to be too careful about, Oh, that's not the winger sound. You know, we, we push the boundaries, but just because it's him and I, it does sound like the band. It does. Um, I'm trying to think here. Where do I want to go next? Uh, okay. I'll go here. Uh, I am speaking to Alan Parsons next. You worked with him back in 2005. You were lead singer for the project. Um, talk to me about working with him. And also, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about this Bob Dylan record that you were on back in the day, uh, uh, Down in the Grove, uh, or in the Groove, I should say, not the Grove, though. Um, but talk to me about working with Alan and then being on a Bob Dylan record. Well, working with Alan was another great honor of my life. I mean, I was at the L.A. airport landing to go do something. I don't remember what. And I got a phone call. I was like, hello, kid, it's Alan Parsons. You know, I'd like you to be my lead singer. I'm like, what? Uh, you know, so that was uh, absolutely awesome and uh, a great honor because I was a huge fan of Alan Parsons. In fact, I have a postcard that when I was 16 years old, I sent Alan my demo tape of my band with my brothers. And we sent many demo tapes out for, you know, trying to solicit a record deal and get some help. And Alan Parsons actually wrote me back. And I have the postcard of when Alan wrote me back and said, you know, I don't, I'm not producing bands, but this all sounds very pleasant and, you know, super polite. And it, it's a testament to, who he is as a person to this day, one of the not only brilliantly talented, but I mean, just absolute sweetheart of a guy, just lovely person. And uh, um, so it was very awesome to go to the first rehearsal and say, check this postcard out that you, you know, sent me back when I was 16 years old, you know. Um, and I sang with them for a while and it was, it's incredible. Um, great songs, you know, great songs to sing. For me, my schedule just wasn't working. I couldn't keep everything going. And so I had to, uh, I had to step out, but it was, uh, and I, and sometimes I sub for them over the years, but, uh, when PJ can't do it or something like that, but I mean, it was, uh, incredible. He's always got an incredible band and the songs are incredible. They really are. They really are. Now, uh, I'm going to circle right back here to, uh, M uh, um, well, we didn't talk about Bob Dylan. Uh, just quickly, uh, Down in the Groove uh, came out in, God, 88. How did you end up on that? And, and what was it like to be sort of on one of these avant-garde, well, avant-garde, one of the sort of the greatest American uh, artists of all time, just to be on a Bob Dylan record? Well, yeah, it's, it's amazing to be on a Bob Dylan album. Um, basically, I get to say I was on a Bob Dylan album. It, it came, it came, um, it didn't come straight at me. I worked on a on a movie that he did with Fiona Flanagan called Hearts of Fire, and uh, I was working a lot with Bo Hill. Of course, Bo Hill was the producer on our first couple albums, and uh, and I 
that song was in the movie and didn't make the movie. So I played bass on that song and, um, it didn't make the movie. And then, uh, Bob put it on an album lucky for me, but I never hung out with Bob Dylan and I never, uh, you know, I, I didn't get, I, it's not as romantic as it sounds that I was on a Bob Dylan album. You know, I didn't get to do the hang and all that. Um, but I did play on it and I am there. And, uh, as, as long as my name is spelled correctly, which it wasn't on the first Al- Alice Cooper album. <laughs> um, I'm happy. I mean, I was, look, I'm really lucky, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have done the things that I've done in the business. And I've, uh, you know, got to play with all my heroes except for Joe Walsh. And, you know, uh, I mean, what more could I ask? I'm still, I still have a gig at 57 years old. So I'm, I'm good. You're doing pretty good. Uh, since you mentioned Alice real quick, uh, we know you played on a couple of albums. You did the tours. Um, and I actually am interviewing uh, Kane Roberts next week. But uh, talk to me a little bit about what you learned from Alice Cooper. Because here's a guy who's been in the business longer than I can count. He's made all sort of the smart moves, you know, going to solo with Welcome to My Nightmare, coming back with, with Poison and Trash and he just knows him and 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 his team just know what to do. What do you, as a sort of a, I don't want to say a rookie back then, but as a younger guy back then, what did you learn from him and being in his environment, the business sense, the acumen? Did did you learn anything? Did he teach you anything about? Okay, this is how you become a successful musician. Well, Alice is very humble. I mean, he would never say he would never offer his advice. I mean, he would never do that. But I, but yeah, of course I did. I, I, I before I was in his band, I was waiting tables in Hoboken, New Jersey. Three months later, I was headlining Joe Louis Arena as his bass player, um, and I learned through osmosis. I mean, I watched him, and. Uh, and I watched their organization. You're right. They're great. He's had the same manager the whole time. They're, they're very tight and together. And Alice is very, very generous and super talented, incredible live performer. And, uh, so I got to just, it was like going to a uh, rock star university. I mean, I got to just be on the sidelines where no responsibility was on my shoulders, except play bass and sing the background vocals. And, I got to watch and learn and, you know, I was never into drugs and drinking and all that stuff. So I was really, uh, Alice used to call me the briefcase rocker actually, cause I'd study on the bus. I'd pull out my scores and study WC or something on the bus, but, uh, you know, yeah, I learned uh, almost basically everything about being in the quote big time with Alice. And then I stepped out of Alice and, got a record deal and sold a couple million records with Reb, you know? So, um, that was a direct reflection of the things that i learned from Alice. So, I mean, I really owe Alice a lot. Um, but like I say, he's a very humble guy and he's, he's, uh, he would never take credit for anything like that. And, uh, you know, he's just, uh, still kicking ass and, uh, he's incredible. He really is. And of course, Shep, Shep, just great manager. Um, and we'll start wrapping up here. But uh, Conversations with Nijinsky uh, came out a couple of years ago, gets a Grammy nomination, goes to number one on the classical charts. Uh, just talk to me about making classical music and, and 
the accolades that came with this one because there there is a perception sometimes that oh you came from the hair hair metal thing even though I've never considered you hair metal blah blah and yet you get all this respect the album is great the the uh, San Francisco Ballet Orchestra it's just perfect Grammy nomination talk to me about that whole time period and that experience and 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 just getting that recognition for doing something that's not rock well that was uh, a, a lifetime dream fulfilled and I I spent years and years and years and years and years studying um, you know because I was basically what I would call a well I mean I was self-taught musician up until about 35 I started studying this stuff at about 35 and uh, like I say when I when I want to learn something I try to go to their language and um, learn it and master it and do the best I can in terms of speak, speaking on their terms. I didn't want any favors because I was a, you know, platinum selling rock star guy, which I don't consider myself to be, by the way. But 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 if I walk into a, a uh, an orchestral setting, they'll go, oh, this guy's a rock star. He sold a million records, so he must have a giant ego or something. I never considered myself. I still don't even feel like I made it. I'm kind of this guy that's still trying to write good music in my mind, you know? So, um, I don't mean to be, um, coy. I just mean that none of that stuff. I never wore the, the suit of, Hey, I'm a rock star guy. You know, I was always like music student in my mind. Right. So I walk into the, into the, uh, into the classical arena and I want to prove myself on their terms. And, so at first they're a little bit like, okay, who is this guy? He's probably going to show, uh, you know, put some, uh, you know, Hollywood style film music in front of us. That's, you know, a bunch of whole notes and major chords and stuff. And, 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 and it's far from that. So I did earn, uh, some respect right off the bat. And, and, uh, and now I really understand the classical world for what it is. And, and uh, and you have to speak their language, basically. So it, when we recorded the record, like I say, it was all a learning experience because I'd never done it before. So I'm I, I'm I'm big on. Did you ever know? You know the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know he's big on finding mentors. So I was always like, "Where's my next mentor?" And I still to this day I'm like working with several people that I consider mentors who do what I want to do better than me. So I, you know, kind of shadow them and, and, uh, you know, step into the process. So, and, uh, Leslie Ann Jones was a, is a superb producer engineer who we worked with, with San Francisco ballet. We recorded at Skywalker sound and, uh, we got a fantastic recording, great performance. And I couldn't find anybody to put the record out because it was, Oh, this rock star guy doing classical. Yeah. Right. So I formed a label and put it out myself. And we promoted it ourselves and took that record to number one because I was like, really? Okay, let me show you how this is done. You know, so uh, I took it upon myself to, uh, you know, make that part happen. The Grammy nomination was completely out of left field. I mean, I was so blown away by that and honored to be on the list of the other composers in the top five list. It was uh, absolute uh, shocking to me that I was chosen for classical composition. So that was a cherry on top that you could never, ever imagine how incredible, what a feeling that was. Um, and I'm a fan of all the other composers that were on that list. And, 
you know, so to be sitting in the Grammy Hall and have your name announced among those composers was, again, a, one of the greatest honors of my life. I mean, it was absolutely surreal. I mean, I could never describe to you uh, how amazing it was. To uh, And I'm right now I'm in my studio looking at the metal. It sits on a lamp that I have right next to my keyboard. So I'm very proud of that. And it was also a um, nice thing to come back from a lot of the the you know flack that the band took back in the day for you know kind of being the band that sucked and all this kind of thing you know so it was a nice comeback if i don't mind saying you know it was great and and by the way you you've noticed that i that i have uh, stayed away from the whole beavis and butthead and all i mean it's just nonsense just nonsense um but real quick uh, and last question here out of all the creative outlets, the the play, the the classical music, the the, the acoustic solo tours, the the, the band, the, are they all equally as rewarding to you? Or are there some where you, you just get a bigger kick out of it? You know, how do you sort of compare them all? Is it all just hey, this is my art, all of it, and I love it? Or you like, man, when I did that uh, classical thing, it's great. Or man, getting a Broadway play is so much better than a than a new. Winner. No, no, no. no. Okay. No, no, I, it's all level playing field. I okay. get just as much pleasure out of writing a song with Rab as writing a, a a song with Damien for the musical as 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 uh, working on my symphony to uh, you know uh, doing something super weird and creative for my solo album. Uh, what I the, a lot of times what people should know about me is that I that I I have certain I have a I have a general mentality of thinking out, okay, who's out there listening to what I do and what are they expecting? And I don't write under expectations, but I do consider the people that listen to my music and, and go, you know, what do they expect from me? You know, cause I'm, I'm a little out of the norm. I do many different things. And so, you know, I kind of, I kind of write from the point of view where, okay, I'm going to write what I want to write. I don't, I don't, uh, compromise on my own, uh, you know, vision, but I also think, okay, I'm speaking to people because music is a thing for all people. You know, it's a it's quote, the universal language. I take that part of it very seriously, that it is a universal language. And I just happen to be blessed enough to uh, be able to do it in, in a few different genres. And, um, uh, and I take it very seriously. I mean, I don't, I don't just want to put out one song after the next that sounds like the last 10 years of songs that I did. I don't ever want to repeat myself because I'm not that kind of an artist. I'm the kind of artist that would bleed over the keyboard and cut my ear off or something like that and mail it to somebody. You know, that's, I'm much more in that um, genre, if you will, of artists where we're, where we're, where we bleed for the art. And that's, that's uh, because you can't do anything else, you know, instead of, Oh, I'm doing this for the money, or I got to go on tour to make some more bread, or something like that. I'm I'm really focused in the in the whole point of view of of what am I giving to the people that are listening to this. Gotcha. And you've given some great stuff. And folks, uh, if you haven't checked out Karma or Better Days coming, a why not? And b you must. Absolutely terrific, Kip. I always a pleasure to talk to you. I will see you at M3. And I look forward to the next whatever you do. And I do want to see the play, the, the musical. I think it's going to be terrific. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Hey, please, please uh, be sure to come uh, say hi when, I, uh, when you're at M3. I'd love to say hi to you. 
Absolutely. I, I will be there and I will say hello. And uh, as we say in Montreal, in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you very, very much for today. Thank you. Have a nice day. Cheers now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Kip Winger. You gotta love Kip, man. And uh, the band Winger, there are not a lot of bands where you look at the back catalog and you go, those were the glory days. You look at Kip Winger and Winger now and you go, no, the glory days were the last two or three albums. Yes, the other stuff was great, you know, 17 and, and uh, Heartbreak or whatever, Heartache. Or, but the new stuff, Karma and, um, and stuff, is that's, that's where it's at. The band is only getting better and better. And uh, we will welcome back Steve Brown. But just before that, let me just remind the folks, Alan Niven will be back with us uh, shortly. He is uh, temporarily held up in a, a studio in Arizona doing what Alan does and uh, as when he was a nipper i guess right steve when, uh, <laughs> a nipper you, yeah I, he was when he was a when he was a little chap when he was a, a wee young nipper chap in, his, in his formative years but that's what he always says i like the way when he says it he always emphasizes he doesn't, he doesn't go hey man you know when i was a wee nipper he goes when i was a blah, blah, when i was a wee nipper <laughs> But it's it's emphasis. But uh, speaking of we nippers, we are going to speak with Eric Baker. And folks, I, I know what you're thinking. He's not a rock star. Why am I going to listen? But you got to listen because Eric Baker brings you this festival. And if you knew what he does away from the festival, the management and the 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 the, the sync rights and all the stuff that he's in charge of, you'd, you'd be really impressed. And and I just want to let folks know that Eric and and you'll talk to this, uh, Steve. He's not just some dude that has a bunch of money and put a festival together. It's not like that. He's a guy who worked it, was at MCA Records, dealt with artists, dealt with management, dealt with bands, learned the business inside out. This is a guy who gets it, and that's why M3 is where it is, and that's why M3 is a great festival. It's run like a machine. I mean – I've been to a lot of – and you've been to those too, right, Steve, where you go to a festival and you go, where's the dressing room? And they point you to a barn and you go, there's a cow in that barn. You go, yeah, well, that's where we're going to – I mean that happened to me in Albany. This was a festival with anthrax and all that, and, and, and the dressing rooms were in a barn, and it smelled like a barn. This is not M3. M3 is run like a high-class machine. So where, where do you know Sir Baker from? Uh, yeah, well, Eric Baker, we met uh... – Trickster guys and myself, we met Eric back in 1990, um, right on our first tour. Um, first time we ever played the Axis Club. All the Boston fans will know this Axis, and uh, you know, right by Fenway Park. Um, Eric was our local radio promotions guy for MCA Records in the in the New England area, and he was being pretty much our age. And we hit it off immediately, man. I remember me, him, and PJ went to play, went to some pool hall and played pool and drank beer and before our show. And, uh, you know, it's a friendship that's it lasted all these years. And, you know, people out there don't know, Eric was, you know, radio promotions guy for years with uh, MCA and then various other labels. And then he went on and he's in management. He's every facet of the business Eric has a hand in, whether it's endorsement, you know, product placement for endorsements. Um, and just, you know, and he's a Jersey guy as well. So you got to love him for that. He's, you know, he's from a couple towns over from us 
And, um, and it's, it's great to see the success. I think this year is the 11th year of the festival. And we all know how many festivals in rock and roll and especially in the hard rock genre come and go. But when you see a festival that's been around and pretty much staying true, um, to the roots of what it is, which is, uh, you know, an eighties featured hard rock festival, uh, 11 years in, man, you gotta say that that's a huge accomplishment. And, uh, Eric and Brad who run M3 have just done a phenomenal job and they take such good care of all the bands. And that's why everybody, there's so many repeat, uh, as I say, repeat offenders, but not repeat offenders, repeat, you know, customers, bands who keep coming back and, you know, want to be a part of M3. If it was up to me, I would play M3 every year for the rest of my life. I'm going to ask you two things about this. Have has Trickster, the original band, played M3? Yeah, we've done it twice. Okay. And by the way, on um, for those folks who want to see Steve with Danger Danger, their set time is Saturday, May fourth, from two forty-five to three thirty p.m. So there you go. So we know we know. So show up early if you want to see Steve rock out. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's actually like a later time for us because I know uh, the first year when Trickster played, I think in 2010, we were on at like uh, one o'clock in the afternoon, and I'll never forget when we played that. And you know, there wasn't many people in the place at that time, and I was kind of like I said, I remember saying to Eric, man, I said, dude, what? Why are we on so early? He said, Steve, don't worry. Wait. Once you start, you'll see what happens. And it was like it was something out of a movie. Uh, it was like a hurricane of people. As soon as I hit that first open E chord to ring out like we do and make noise. And all of a sudden it was like people were coming, falling out of trees, coming from the mountains. And within a minute into our first song, the place was half full. And by, you know, the halfway through our set, the place was packed. And uh, and so it's just a magical, magical, magical festival. So can't wait to rock it out with the D2 boys. Again, yep. we got a quick set. It's going to be full of uh, nothing but the greatest kit. It's going to be it's going to be epic. And the band on right after you is L.A. Guns and then Steven Adler of Guns and Roses. So I've, I've got the set, the uh, the set times in front of me, actually. Let's uh, let's see some of the uh, the highlights here. Uh, Tora Tora opens the first day at noon. Uh, and awesome. then we've got Danger 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 at 2:45. Like I said, Warrant, who is back again, is at 7:30. Friend of mine, Bill Leverty and Firehouse are at 6:10 on that first night, and then White Snake start at 9:15. And then uh, next day, the Sunday, Vane hits the stage at 12. Quiet Riot, my buddy uh, Frank Benelli at 3:05. Vince Neil at 7:05, and a 3:4 reunited Dawkin. And the second night at uh, eight thirty to nine forty on the Sunday. So, and of course, a lot of great bands in there: Extreme, uh, Vixen, Bang Tango, Kingdom Come with James Kotak and more. So, folks, you got to go. You got to go. It, it is important. And uh, let us talk to the man who makes all of this possible, or certainly one of the men who makes it all possible, Eric Baker. So, without further ado, Steve, anything to add, or should we just get over to Eric? Just get over to Eric. We'll we see go. you. We'll see you next week at M3. Can't wait. And uh, it's going to be another phenomenal year in at the Merryweather Post Pavilion in sunny Columbia, Maryland. M3, yes. baby, here we come. And don't forget the after shows. Uh, hang out at the Sheridan. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the lobby and bar there. And uh, 
I know when you walk along the waterfront, there's a, a restaurant bar that sort of everybody goes to, except I don't know the name of You know what I'm talking about? Do you Clyde. know what Clyde. 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 Yeah. C L Y D E? I think so. Yeah. Clyde. Everybody. Clyde's- yeah. That's going to be, it's between, yeah, there's stuff going on. I mean, you know, that, that, that's the other cool thing about it because it's a full weekend festival. You know, a lot of people, some people even get there on Thursday. It's kind of like, you know, it, it's almost like the monsters are rock cruise, but just on, on land, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is how I prefer it. Quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not um, well, I like boats and water. It's my stomach that doesn't like boats and water, which is annoying. Yeah. But, uh, yeah you know, I know people are going to say, well, those boats have stabilizers. Fine. Invite me. Because I'm not paying three thousand dollars to be sick all weekend, but I'll I'll go for free and suck it up. <laughs> anyway, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Here is uh, here is well, you know what? Uh, Clyde's Sheridan M3 folks uh, show up, meet us all, and uh, here is the man that makes it all possible, uh, the one, uh, the only, and yes, why not, the mighty Eric Baker. We are speaking with M3 Rock Festival organizer, creator, and all around everything, Eric Baker. Eric, a pleasure to have you on today. How are you? Doing well, Mitch. How are you? Good, good. It is always exciting to be talking about rock festivals, and M3, to me, and I've been to many, is probably the best fan experience. I mean, the... You, you've got, you know, the, the seats with the open, you know, the open pavilion. You've got the, the, well, the shed, I guess, for the lack of a better word. The the bands are, are very accessible. Um, just talk to me about this whole concept and putting together this festival and, and having it. Why not? 11 years? 10 years? 11 years? 11 years now. Wow. Um, you know, the, the interesting part of this, when I thought of this 12 years ago, um, it was before Rocklahoma did theirs. They, they definitely beat us to the punch and they did a great job, uh, with Rocklahoma. But when I thought of this, it was like the days of the early Coachella when people were spending ridiculous amounts of money on festivals. And it was probably, you know, 3 million or $5 million, you know, for an artist budget instead of 30 to 40 or 50 million, which a lot of festivals are now. And I was thinking, how do we do something that is niche and doesn't cost that? And I woke, literally woke up in the middle of the night. And I said, 80s rock. And it was like, wow, this is perfect. And, and I went to the IMP guys who I was affiliated with through the Virgin Festivals and knew them. And, and I said, what's your thoughts? And they said, put together a business model. And I saw how they treated fans and their venues. And, and I was like, they're just a perfect partner. And, and I went to them with a the model and they said, we love it. Let's do this. And that's kind of like literally how this whole thing started on a handshake and we've never had a contract. Um, and I couldn't ask to be like partnered with better people than I have right now. Yeah. So let, let's talk about it this year. In the past, you, you've had sort of two nights of 80s rock and a night of sort of Southern rock. Now it's three days of all sort of 80s and, and I'll call it hair metal. I mean, I don't think it's a derogatory mm-hmm. term, uh, but you've got some really exciting stuff. First of all, White Snake. Talk to me about getting White Snake because David Coverdale. I mean, that's that's a real rock star. That's 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 the real deal right there. I mean, he's like the pinnacle of like what we look at like at '80s rock stars. You know, we look back at the MTV days, and it was like Coverdale was as big as you get. Um, and they still do great touring business. And they played one of the first couple of years for us, and we've been trying to get them back ever since. It's just schedules don't work, um, and we're always kind of that first week in May, last week in April, maybe for right into the second week of May, but we're early in the festival season. 
so we're early for a lot of bands that are as big as like a white snake. And so it just happened that this year it worked. Um, and we're excited. I mean, one, one we, you know, we talked offline about higher level. Like these guys are just, everybody in their camp is a hundred percent professional. And it's, it's so easy. It, it's, you think the bigger the band, the more difficult it's going to be. And it's not, these guys are as easy as it comes and, yeah. and we're excited. And, and, and then the response on social media has been just incredible that we got them. So, you know, for a fan experience, it's going to be amazing. As a promoter, it's amazing. I mean, I can't wait to sit and watch the set, and I'm sure we'll be watching it together and being in awe how good this band really is. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm in awe just that it was announced, quite frankly, because I, I love that band. Um, and let, let's talk about some of the other stuff here. You've got the special VIP acoustic set by Kip Winger. Every year you do these special VIP acoustic sets. Last year you had Frank Hannon of Tesla. Talk to me about the fan experience, these, these special sort of extras that you can, you know, upgrade to or purchase because it is exciting. And it's not just, oh, I get a special VIP section where I can stand under a tent and get a fresh drink. It's actually you get an entire set by one of these artists. Yeah, I mean, our VIP show has always been good. It was Jack Russell. It was Lita Ford. It was, you know, Frank Hannon. It, now it is Kip. And one of the things about being a VIP is you get the preferred seats. You know, you get an artist. You get a VIP lounge. You get early entry. You get this show. But we also end up by giving more premiums that we don't even announce. You always get a shirt. There's always a poster. There's always another surprise that... um you know, our VIP team like likes to put in there. We want to make sure that if you're paying money, you know, for this kind of experience, you're getting more than you expected. And, and I think we do a really good job at one, keeping the price somewhat low compared to other festivals. And then two, giving more than you would usually get. And, and you also and get the, the, well, you also get that picture with the band, the bands come back and you get a picture with them too. Of course you get the meet and greet which um, we don't guarantee every band will do it. But most, I, I, almost every band has been so great about like doing these meet and greets over the past 11 years. And I think it's important for fans to have that experience. I mean, it's, I would want to do it. You know, there's, there's people that I want to meet that I haven't met. And you, you think like, you know, even like a cover you're like, it's, I want a picture with that dude. <laughs> you know, it's a part of our like growing up. So uh, yeah, that that's that's the one on the top of my list. I really want a picture with uh, with Coverdale and stuff, and of course his band, uh, Joel Hoekstra and stuff, all all great guys. But talk to me also about putting together an '80s festival in terms of the business model, because I know you touched upon it. But you know, I, festivals reach out to me sometimes, and I don't want to say consult, but they say, hey, we're, we've got a heavy metal festival. You know, what bands do you think should come on? And I'll say something like a White Snake or. Th- and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's 80s. Nobody's going to buy that. But your festival is entirely 80s. It's been around 11 years. You do, what, 30, 40, 50,000 on a weekend, which is remarkable. Um, what is it about that band and, and those bands and that, keep, that keeps the fan coming and also just the fact that you took a chance and it's working? Well, one of the things is I think when you're trying to build a brand, and M3 is now a brand, for, for 80s metal. And I feel like you have to stay true to it. Like, and once again, I am not putting down Rock, Oklahoma because they've been very good to us and he's a manager and my artist. And when they were doing 80s, they were great. And when they forayed into the more current stuff, it's, it's an incredible festival. So, but they didn't stay true to it. 
and and that's fine. And they they're huge because of it. But the way we always thought of eighties is that we can never escape it. It's either going to be all eighties or we have to just shut it down. And we're not, we don't want to shut it down. We're not even close to shutting it down. But I think building this brand and building everything that has to do with eighties metal in, you know, and it's kind of like a fan experience. It like kind of like gets into it. We have, you know, some nice, uh, you know, guitar shops that come in and help out and there's custom guitar shops and custom boards and like kind of feed into the experience and make you relive that one week, that one like kind of weekend is so important to us and putting it together is actually somewhat easy. You know, there's, there's a lot of great agents that represent these bands. Few of them represent themselves. Um, but they, they're happy that we ask them and we're honored that they want to play it. And it's just, you know, this, when you do a deal with somebody and both sides feel great about it, it's, it's a win-win situation. And I, and I think, you know, this from being backstage last year is our backstage experience for the artist, whether you're the first done on a Friday night or headlining, you're treated like a headliner. And, and that's really important to them as well, that when they walk into this, to this venue, that this is a big deal for them. And there are a lot of these artists that play clubs now that were headliners back in the day. And the fact that they get treated like it for a day again or for a show, it's, it's important to them. And once again, it's important to us. Yeah, it really is. And, and I'll say one thing about your backstage. I've been to a lot of festivals, a lot of backstages, and I, I, I was one... I think it was in Albany, and they literally had put the bands and the media in a barn, and it smelt like a barn. And you were yeah. dealing with bands like Anthrax, and who else was on that thing? Maybe was it Godsmack? Anyway, and I'm like, wow. And and there are two festivals to me that stand out. I mean, uh, there is Heavy Montreal up here where they treat everybody like royalty, and then there's yours where it's the same thing. Like you just said, everybody's treated like royalty and that. And you know what? When you have bands that are happy and they're not grumpy about, oh, we got cold pizza in our dressing room and our dressing room sucks and there's a pipe leak. They come out and they put on a better show because they're in a good mood. And that that, that actually matters. It really does. It, um, it, it does matter. And it's like, don't you want to treat people the way you want to be treated? You know, Absolutely. you walk into a restaurant and it doesn't matter if it's fast food or, or, or the fanciest restaurant in your town. And you want to be treated with a certain level of respect because you're going there. And, and we feel that there are guests like, why wouldn't we treat them the way we would want to be treated if we were guests at something? And, and IMP, just so you know, like just to touch, to get people like a kind of foray into the backstage it's got a pool. It's got three massage huts. It has the best catering out of any venue in the country. Uh, and this is all IMP, which is the operator of the venue. Um, and that's all on them. And they've just done such a great job making it the premier shed in the country. It's like, you know, people walk in there and they're in awe. And everybody gets a dressing room with a shower and a bathroom. Nobody's sharing. You know, it's, not, it's just not that vibe. And, and I have to say, I have never seen a backstage area with a with a pool. Forget a functioning pool, a pool. I've never, and it's just funny to see all the bands sort of sitting around in their, you know, whatever bikinis or, or shorts, just <laughs> hanging out by the pool. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a different vibe for a show. So that's great. Um, let me ask you this: cause... We're just happy that there's no speedos. No speedos allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially especially for uh, for journalists, that that would be terrible. But uh, let me ask you this from the Canadian perspective: you you look at the yeah. lineup, uh, and it's American band, American band, American band, American band, which is fine because you're in America. But 
I, I do see the fans say, well, what about this Canadian banner? What about this European banner? Talk to me about some of the challenges, because there is a market market forces at play. Not everybody will know XYZ Canadian band or XYZ European band, but there's also cost associated with flying in a band from Sweden or flying in a band from, you know, Vancouver. Um, but is that something that as we move on to see year 12, year 13, you might take a chance on bands from other countries or it, you know, you well, know what I'm saying? We have, but we have taken chances. So like, I'll give you a great example. And it's, and by the way, great question because there are certain things and hopefully someone will hear this and say, oh, great, we got to do this. I've wanted to try them forever. I think they'd be amazing. Okay. So, Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know, Frick, you're listening, uh, give us a call. <laughs> and, but we've had loudness, but there's been these issues with loudness. So we've had them a couple of times. And then the last two times there've been these issues and, and that's not on us. The manager of the band takes care of the visas. Um, and so once again, we, uh, what, where's wasp from, but they're from overseas and we've had Europe headlined a couple of years ago, but there is challenges because one, it's expensive to get here. You know, and so unless the band's here or can do something here, it's hard to get them for, you know, we look at what they do. We don't just come up with random numbers to pay artists. There's research that goes into it, as, as you know, and it's, you can't just pay someone triple the amount because their flights are more expensive. If it doesn't mean that much. You know, like we want to have Mike Tramp. It's a great example. We want to have Mike Tramp this year. And he had to go back, unfortunately. Um, to Europe and they told us his agent's great and was like very involved and said, like, Hey, listen, Mike, you know, we were confirmed before we announced. And then Mike's like, God has an issue, has to go back, um, has other commitments back in Europe. And you know what? It happens. You know, people need to be home. Um, so there's always a challenge, um, getting people over the pond, but you know, if it's the right band, we're going to try to do it. Yeah. You see, and, and, you know, well, by the way, Whitesnake, I guess, technically is a, a European band, even though everybody Coverdale and everybody else lives in the States. But there's a band yeah, it was uh, in Reno, <laughs> Tahoe. Uh, like Tahoe. There's, um, you know, there's a band that I always think Thunder. They, you know, they sound like mm -hmm. Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and they'd be great. And I think they they'd fit in perfectly as fans with no Backstreet Symphony. But but then you look at it and you think, OK, there are five guys. Then you got at least two crew guys and probably more than two crew guys. You're twenty thousand dollars in the hole before they even land, and that's just not feasible. Even though musically perfect, but financially, yes, not feasible. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's that's where kind of like you have to like kind of mix art and commerce. Like, what is it worth? And this thunder sell us call ten thousand dollars worth of more tickets because they're on it. But I think of thunder as more of a complimentary artist, just because they never broke in the States the way they did other places. And I like the band. And so I'd love to have them over. And if they were here doing something, we'd love to add them to the festival. But it's just expensive to do it for one, for a one-off. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the problem. So, because I know a lot of folks will write me and say, well, you know, this, like Heavy Montreal, M3, well, they don't take these bands. It's like, yeah, but you don't understand. A one-off at M3 or a one-off at Heavy or a one-off at Rocklahoma or cost 20 25,000 you can't do that and so um you know anyway maybe someday we, we can get some of the canadian bands at least they can drive down but uh the european bands are tougher did you have europe on the bill once at uh, one year yeah they had one year and they were great yeah so they were they, awesome. 
Oh, they're they're fantastic, and hopefully they'll come back. Um, let's look at some of the other things you've got here. You've got Dawkins with three of the original members, and no, it's not because they don't like Jeff Pilson. Everybody loves Jeff Pilson, but he is doing the whole foreigner stuff. But how did you pull I, that I, off? I just have to interject on this. Yeah, everybody loves Jeff Pilson. Everybody yeah. I've ever met, and and I know Jeff very well um, from being involved with with the original Dawkins. He's the greatest. He is literally one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. Absolutely. And, and an incredible singer and bass player. It's like, yeah, like everybody in the world likes Jeff Pilsen. So it's not because of that. <laughs> right. But, but, but talk to me how you pulled it off. Because when you say George Lynch and Don Dawkin, there's always a little bit of friction and there's history and, you know, whatever. Some of it is good PR and some of it is actually they don't like each other. But how did you pull it off? Because this is actually very, very exciting. Yeah, so I worked with Don a long time ago, and and the, there was a guy that that approached us, a guy named Tom Mayhew. I don't know if you ever ran across him. He works, you know, with Axel and worked with Gun with Dockin back in the day. And he, yep. you know, he said, you know, there there's a possibility of having these guys go to Japan. Let's kind of put this together. Um, and we got everybody in a room together. And by the way. There was no friction. Okay. Everybody got along great. It was a lot of fun. And we went to Japan and we did six dates in Japan. And, um, and it was, it was an incredible experience. And it was one of those things where, you know what, let's do something special. And, and let me call George and let me call Don and let's call Mick and obviously call Jeff, but Jeff's out with foreigner and, and see if we could get these guys together to do. And it was kind of like a real easy, like, you know what? Yeah, we had fun. Let's, let's, let's jam together kind of thing. Um, and let's make it great for the fans and the band docking as like all the dysfunction that everybody always talks about with the band. When they're together, and I spent 11 days with them in Japan, they're really good. They're really, really good. And I think all the different personalities is what makes them great. And now, like, you know, they're the band that got me into heavy metal back in the day. And, like, you could see why. You know? Great songs. Great songs, great musicianship, great voice from, from Don. It's like, why not? And it's like, why not put great people back together? Yeah. And so the process was not hard. And, and there was, you know, George and and Don spoke and they came back and they said, great, let's do it. And it was kind of like that. And, you know, we're excited to have them. And they're closing Sunday night. So can't wait for that. It's going to be an incredible show. Oh, that is going to be a spectacular. Now, um, there are two bands that have had, uh, Issues, uh, Heaven's Edge, of course, uh, one of the band members has gotten grievously ill. Uh, just yeah. talk to me about having them or, or, and having them have to pass on this one. That, that must be tough. I mean, when, when a band cancels on you for XYZ reason, you go, oh, okay, whatever. But when it's something like this, where a member gets really, really sick, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about losing them and, 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 and the emotion behind that. Well, I know those guys fairly well. You know, I'm an East Coast guy, and those guys are East Coast. And we all, like, hung in the Monsters of Rock cruise together. And the drummer and I have been, Dave Rath, have been good friends for a long time. Um, And so he kind of introduced me to all the other guys in the band. And I don't know if you know the guys in Heaven's Edge, but they are some of the most spectacular people you'll ever meet. Um, And and George, the bass player, came down with cancer. Um, and there's nothing more important than him just getting better. 
you know? So the emotion is horrible when someone has to like leave a festival because of sickness. Unfortunately, we're getting in that age where I feel like you hear about somebody getting sick every day. You know, don't, do you feel yeah, like I do? Well, I do. Yet? I mean, l- listen, we we Ozzy canceled all his 2019 dates. Fleetwood Mac has just canceled their Canadian tour because uh, somebody's ill. It's it's you know, folks. We Mick Jagger. Mick it's Jagger. A, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, the most important thing, and I'm gonna say this: it's like the most important thing is, is that George gets better. And there was a fund that was set up, and I don't know it off the top of my head. But I'll email it to you. Um, that the guy set up for, for George to help him. Um, but our thoughts and our prayers are with them. And, and, and once again, want to know what's great about M3 and, and the artist? You know, when I called, like, Chips Enough, and I called the Black and Blues agent, and I was like, hey, you know, this is what's going on, and it's it's a really shitty situation. I don't know. Can I say that? I'm sorry. You, absolutely, you absolutely can. Okay. Sorry, it's it's a horrible situation. But like a call chip and chips, like you know, we love to fill in. Thank you for thinking of us. It's like these guys are so nice. It's like you know something horrible's happened, and and we're gonna make sure that like George, that he knows that we're all thinking about him at M3 because we are, and our thoughts and our prayers are with him, and we wish him well, and and hopefully you know they have an open invitation to come back in 2020. Um, and once George is better. And so, but like these guys and like the black and blue guys, the same thing. And like we added and, you know, X, Y, Z and, and Terry, such like a gen, like these guys are like so nice. So like, oh, thanks for putting us on. It's not like, where are we going to be? What are we doing? How much are you going to, it's like, thanks, let's get this done. And, um, you know, and they were all like, sorry that the situation is that heaven's edge can't do it, but thank you for thinking of us. You know, and that's so. what I noticed as well last year, when you look at Night Ranger and Sebastian Bach and Great White and War, they all ended up in the same dressing room together. There was no, oh, they got a bigger catering plate than us, or they got a bigger room. There was none of that. Everybody was hanging by the pool, and everybody was just having a good time. And, you know, you don't see that at other festivals sometimes because the, the rooms are so far apart. Or there really is, well, no, the higher-tiered guests are over here, and the lower-tiered bands are the, and you're creating a sort of a family environment, and the fans out, out front also feel that. Now, there is one other band that has stuff. Do you want to talk about that, or do you want to just move on from that? No, we could talk about it. It's fine. All right, so let, let me just, let, let's just quickly mention L.A. Guns. You've got Steve Riley coming out, and uh, he has a new singer, and he's got a thing. And, of course, legally, blah, 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 he owns 50% of the name. He has a legal right to do this. Okay, great. But the other L.A. guns, Tracy and Phil, have been merciless in, your, in, in, their, in their pursuit of M3 in the media. And it's, it's – what do you say to that? I mean, I know you love L.A. guns. I know you love Phil. I know you love Tracy. Um, a little disheartening that they're doing that. And, and can we make it better? Is there a way to somehow maybe say, all right, guys, come on. Let's all get back on the same page. Yes. One, there's definitely a way to say, like, let's get back. And I'm going to reach out to those guys and and have a conversation offline where this isn't about, like, emails and texts. It's a real adult conversation to say, like, hey, listen, I love Steve Riley, just to let you know. Like, every time they he's been, when he was in LA Guns, the, the form that played, and they were always great to deal with. Um Last year, these guys decided they didn't want to do the show. And I don't even know if the band knows why they decided they didn't want to do the show. Because I've never had a conversation with them. Um, And that's why I need, and I agree. That's why we have to have a conversation. 
And, and, and you know what? I think people want to hear the music of LA Guns. And yes, Steve and Kelly's been in the band. And you know, it's like, you're going to hear the music of LA Guns. And there is a way to fix this with Phil and Tracy. And I don't even know if Tracy realizes, but I worked, you know, I worked LA Guns on Polydor back in the 90s. You know, and wow. we spent time going to radio stations. Um, and the reason why I remember it, because I was a young radio promotion guy and I loved LA Guns. It was a big deal for me. For him, it was probably like another promo guy taking me to radio. Not in a pompous way, just in you meet so many people on the road and you have so many interviews to do. It's not easy. Um, and, and so I, um, I want to make this right with them. Okay. And hopefully they want to make a right with us. But right now we're excited to have Steve and I'm not discrediting those guys. And I think that they, you know, kind of like knew that what they would be getting into. Um, and they've been nothing but gentlemen about it. They haven't fired back. They haven't said anything negative about Phil or Tracy. They're just going to come out and play their shows, play the show and, and wow the crowd. And that's what I hope happens. And we can move on. And I hope, you know, I hope everybody gets along after this. I mean, I know Steve and I will, you know, and, and I hope Phil and I will and Tracy and I will, and I hope we all move forward and put this, put it behind us because we're all grown men. Yeah. You know, let's just fix it. I, I, I agree with that sentiment just in the sense that uh, I think the, the bottom line is that we all sort of need each other in the sense that when I do interviews and stuff, I need the bands. I need to be friendly with the bands. I, I can't have them, you know, blacklisting me or not wanting to talk. And, and they, I serve a purpose for them, too, because when I when I put them on Twitter and my Facebook and the show, it helps promote their stuff. And there's not a lot of M3 festivals out there. In fact, there isn't. <laughs> any festivals you know when i try to get an 80s band for example to heavy montreal not that they don't want them they just don't have the slots because they're doing black metal death metal this and that so they can only afford yeah. two, two 80 slots a year um and that's it's not because they hate 80s it's just because there's x amount of slots per genre if you want um mm -hmm. you know and heavy montreal is so amazing I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I know how well you speak of them and we've talked about it in depth offline. It's like, yeah, I mean, when they're curating the festival, they say, okay, we have two slots for 80s and, and that's great, you know, but there's not a lot of what we do. So we're getting, you know, what, 20 something bands in on a weekend. And, you know, the other great festival is getting two and, yeah. and not putting them down. It's just not their format. Absolutely. And that's, and that's my point with LA guns is that, if they don't do this festival ever again, they they lock themselves out of a nice fan base and a nice weekend and a nice event. So so now hopefully everybody will get back on the same page. And of course I can't speak for them, but uh, listen, next year I would love to show up and see you know the headliners, blah blah blah, and have L.A. Guns uh, there and and with Phil and Tracy. But we'll we'll see we'll see. Um, of we'll, course, we'll see what happens. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? And and of course, uh, yeah. The festival is, is doing well. There's no chance of no festival next year, right? I mean, this is good for – we're good for at least the next 10 years. Uh, you know what? I hope so. <laughs> I love it. I love doing it, you know. Uh, you, you know, it's it's really one of the special days of my life every year. You know, take away family stuff. But of my, my professional life, and, and I love being a part of it, and I love seeing the people. And, and like, I, you know, can I just – go on a tangent for one second about something Absolutely. I heard the fifth year, which Absolutely. just touched my heart. And, and it's, you just look at the reason why you do it. And a woman came up to me, she met my ex-wife who we were still married at the festival and says, you know, I, um, 
yeah, my wife, my ex-wife says, you got to meet this woman. She has a story for you. And so I said, okay, I'll meet her. And I meet this woman and she's telling me how she was depressed and she didn't know how much longer she had the will to live kind of like she was ostracized and made fun of and so on and so forth. And basically M3 was going to be one of her last shows. Who knows what that means, whether she was ever going to see a rock show again or what she ever wanted to do, but it was a very sad story and really touched me. My point of it is it turns out to be very happy is that she ended up meeting her husband there. She met her group of friends. She's happily married, has a kid. Like it is the group of people and the openness to meet other people. And if, Hey, you're at M3, you're part of the family. And that drives me every year to do this. And, you know, every time we release the lineup, you get haters and you kind of take that negativity. You go, yeah, you know what though? Someone met their husband and had a kid because of me. It's okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and not because of me, but because of the festival and, and, and right. like the kind of things like that. It just, it drives you to always want to be better and do it better and make more people happy and understand that this is really a special format of music. And somewhat, people will say, some of the last great rock stars ever, you know? And not that there's not great rock stars now, but just kind of the arenas and the debauchery backstage and everything that took place. And when people thought of rock and roll, don't know if that's happened lately. No, I, I um, agree. And And the other great thing is you get to see a lot of these bands on a big stage where not to put any of them down, but a lot of them are playing smaller venues or clubs and there's a certain vibe and ambiance to that, but seeing them on a huge stage, being able to do the full production, being able to do the full show, it, it really is something that you have to see. It's great. It's just great. Anyway, let us let me remind, remind the folks, it is at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland, May 3rd, 4th and 5th, 2019. And other than Whitesnake, you will see Extreme, Warren, Skid Row, Vince, Neil, Quiet Riot, Firehouse, and I could go on and on, but please... Uh, you can head over to the MerryWeatherMusic.com website, which is the official venue ve- uh, website for tickets and other information. And uh, Eric, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Always, always a pleasure. And th- this to me is, this signifies the beginning of summer for me. When M3 comes around, even though it's still spring, to me it's officially summer. And what a way to kick yeah. it off. Yeah, right? I mean, well, I appreciate you having us. In it. Yeah, it's the best way. Rock and roll and kick it off in the summer is the best way. I mean, to me, I feel like the festival season started after M3, and it's just about good music after that and, and kind of all the things that you do in the summer and barbecues. So I appreciate your support, though, and we all do it. Uh, and also, feel free to go to Ticketmaster.com or M3Rockfest.com. Yeah, um, absolutely. For, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll finish Yeah, for... I'll get all that posted in the show notes as well. But also, uh, if, there, if there's one band that you could get, regardless of money, whether they're from Sweden or, or Norway or whatever, what would be the one headliner that, you, that you'd that you really love to have? I mean, would it be like a Kiss or would it be like a Metallica? Or would it, like is, who's the one band you say, man, someday, dare to dream? I mean, I mean it's got to be ACDC. Oh. You know what I mean? It's like... Like I remember, just to, I remember sitting at Madison Square Garden, seeing ACDC, and sitting in the last row, farthest away from the stage, watching the guys on the stage before the band came on, going, "I want to do that." ACDC is like the pinnacle of what we do. I mean, but I'd also love to have Iron Maiden. So Ooh. you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah right? <laughs> Iron Maiden would be nice. 
any of that. You know, that's the thing. Uh, you got a lot of that sort of hair metal stuff, but a couple of those, because I don't consider Iron Maiden hair metal, and I certainly don't consider ACDC hair metal. They, they would no. be stunning. They would be spectacular. Oh, yeah, but the God. thing is, ACDC plays stadiums. They don't need us. You know, which is good for them. <laughs> you know, good for them. Good for them. They don't need to play a shed. They're playing a stadium. So, you know, I would love, I, listen, I'd love to have it, but, you know, you got to keep it in its pocket. And there's a lot of great bands that we can have that, that fit the bill. And, you know, there's a lot of great t- bands going on tour in 2020 that we're going to hope to get as well. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, always yeah. a pleasure. And of course, again, uh, May 3rd, 4th and 5th down in Columbia, Maryland. And uh, folks, uh, buy your tickets and uh, go have a great time. Go, go listen to some Bang Tango. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for everything. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVon. Mitch LaVon. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.